Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. In the words of our guest, the world-renowned fishery scientist, Dr. Daniel Pauly, our oceans have been the victims of a giant Ponzi scheme waged with Bernie Madoff-like callousness by the world's fisheries. As Dr. Pauly documented, starting around 1950, fishing fleets became increasingly industrialized bolstered by massive government subsidies and equipped with technologies like onboard refrigeration and acoustic fish finders. Cod, tuna, flounder, halibut, and other attractive species in the global north were soon exploited to depletion, their populations falling more than 90% in the last 50 years. As those fish populations disappeared, industrial fishing fleets expanded in three dimensions to keep the scheme going. Geographically, moving further offshore and southward to the coast of developing nations, vertically, moving into deeper waters, and taxonomically, moving on to smaller and stranger species that were never before eaten by humans. The depleted species were largely forgotten. Since most fishery scientists used to focus on specific species in specific locations and governments reported skewed data, this Ponzi scheme existed for decades without anyone noticing. But then, against all odds, Dr. Polly came along. Born in Paris to an African-American GI and a working-class Frenchwoman at the end of World War II, Daniel Polly rose from a difficult and extraordinarily unusual childhood in Europe to become one of the most successful fishery scientists in the history of the field, and the first to recognize the need to study and mitigate fish depletion at a global level, and to illuminate the extent and significance of overfishing. This shift in mindset was the equivalent, in his words, of a realization that financial meltdowns are due not to the failure of a single bank, but rather to the failure of the entire banking system. All Ponzi schemes come to an end eventually. They end when the pool of potential investors has been drained. And so too, Dr. Polly says, this one can end when our oceans are empty of life. Or they end when someone illuminates their abusive behavior and regulatory bodies take action in time to limit the number of victims and prevent complete collapse. Dr. Polly has dedicated his life to studying, documenting in over a thousand scientific articles, chapters, and essays, and promoting policies to mitigate the significance and impacts of overfishing on the world's marine ecosystems. He did this by, as he quoted from Matt Damon's character in The Martian, sciencing the shit out of it. The software, scientific tools, and methods he and his research team developed are now used by millions around the globe and have transformed understanding of how humans are impacting oceans. The research makes very clear that fish are in global peril, and so, in turn, are we. A professor and principal investigator of the Sea Around Us project at the University of British Columbia, Dr. Polly is one of the most important whistleblowers of his generation, and one of the most influential, daring, and productive scientists of his time. If our species manages to reverse course and avoid the watery horror show, as he calls it, for which we're on track, It will be thanks in large part to his vision, courage, and decades of tireless work. We owe him our gratitude, and we're thrilled to speak with him today. Dr. Polly, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. Thank you. 
Dr. Pauly, you, you've said previously that, that we humans have expectations of the earth that the earth cannot meet and that industrial fisheries perfectly illustrate how we go about this with the unsustainable depletion of the world's fish stocks. And as a result, you've devoted your career to creating the leading tools, software, databases, and programs that are used around the world to empower people to create a portrait of the state of the world's fisheries and how they've changed. What does that portrait of our oceans look like today? Well, now first to the tools. I began my career, well, I studied in Germany, but I began my career really in the tropics, first in Ghana for my, for my master thesis and in Indonesia between my master and my PhD, and then later in the Philippines after my PhD. And, and I, I realized that in order to work in stock assessment and in evaluating fisheries, I needed lots of information that was locked in a literature that was not available in the countries where I worked. And so the, I was very early interested in putting together packages of information in the form of meta-analyses or later uh, of databases that uh, became uh, the database on fish, fish base, and so on, in order to uh, help colleagues in the developing world to do their work, which is to assess fisheries so that it could be managed. But <clears throat> I realized after a relatively short while that there was no connection between what these colleagues were supposed to do, what we were supposed to do, and the decision that were taken at the policy level, whether to build a port or to buy uh, 50 vessels from Japan or from Norway. This decision were made solely on financial terms or because you could get them, you would get them, that had no base whatsoever in in the work that the scientists did. And uh, so the industrialization of developing countries, the fisheries, was largely uh, a matter of ministers getting money on 10% on, on purchase of vessels, that kind of decision. And uh, it was largely also subsidized by the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and so on. And so the fish uh, in developing countries, the fish resources were soon devastated and by monster fisheries that were completely out of control very soon that happened very soon and in 94 i moved to canada and uh, canada had always been for me and for fishery scientists in europe for example a place where stock were well organized with the fishery science was was in the best in the world just like hockey was uh, for kids in in europe and uh, I came here and, and, and realized that they had just lost the best studied stocks in the world, the, the cod. The fishery had been closed two years before, and it's a fishery that I knew personally because I had been, as a student, on a German research vessel in '73, and I had seen the, the rush that was uh, unlashed on these resources, which, which went down a tube after 500 years of sustainable exploitation. And I realized that the disconnect between the science and uh, the policy was also the case in Canada and uh, by extension in other countries like in Europe. And basically, it hasn't changed. And it continues to be, to be the case that uh, resources that, are, um, that could be producing far more than they do at present when they are depleted are kept depleted. And the fishery, 
doesn't make money and thus it is subsidized so it continues fishing or on uh, overexploited stocks and yet it could make good money if only the stock were rebuilt and exploited by fewer vessels and this is hard because you realize that when you criticize the present management of fishery people think you you want to save the fish because you want to look at them no i would like fisheries to be well run and to be uh, profitable for the fishing industry but it is very rare that uh, fishery is well run so that is the great vision the great the big overview that i have and one more thing this uh, you mentioned this this threefold expansion that i wrote about basically it was in that time in the 50s to 60s to 70s it was easier to go fish offshore to go fish in other countries than to rebuild the stock in your home country so germany instead of uh, repairing the stocks and rebuilding the stocks in the north sea would go fish in in canada the same for for france and and spain and so on this is we have run out of new stocks that we can exploit about in the 90s and uh, since the 90s the stocks the fishery catch globally decline uh, because of that because we we don't rebuild the stock and we, we just go abroad to fish some more and there is no more unfished stocks that we can tap into so that the ponzi scheme analogy is is legitimate in an interview with Yale E360, you offered a fascinating metaphor in which you compare fisheries to a troubled person attempting to commit suicide who's running around at all times with a knife. The fishing industry often sees marine conservationists as their enemy, as the people who are trying to limit their catch. But they're in fact the people running around trying to stop them from stabbing themselves, you've said. Without conservation, the fish populations upon which the industry depends will be wiped out. And you've pointed out that if overfishing were reined in, fish, fish catch would actually go up. I was stunned to learn from your recent book, Vanishing Fish, that global fish catch increased until 1996, at which point it peaked and has been declining ever since. So fishing fleets now are working harder and traveling more to catch ever fewer and smaller fish. I think that's something that few of us landlubbers realize. Yeah, the, uh, in fact, uh, in, in rich countries, the public is uh, advised by the government to eat more fish. And the question is, where, where is fish supposed to come from? Uh, in Britain, in the US, in different countries in Europe, the advisory for the public is to eat more fish, except pregnant women because of the mercury in tuna and so on. But that's a side issue. Eat more fish. It's healthy. It's good for you. Where is it supposed to come from? In Europe, about 80% of the fish that is eaten by Europeans comes from outside of Europe. In Japan, it's also about 70%. In the US, it's 60 to 70%. Most of the fish that people consume in the rich countries come from outside. People are not aware of that. And while, for example, the U.S. has a very well-managed fisheries, uh, domestic fishery, the U.S. Uh, the public eats um, fish that are not caught under optimal condition because it's imported and there is no, no real traceability as to where these stocks really come from. And they come mainly from West Africa, Asian, 
and the southern hemisphere and uh, well there are less there are fewer people in the southern hemisphere but basically every country hopes to increase its uh, fish consumption at essentially the cost of somebody else and given that the global catch is declining and that population is increasing something has to give and when you study for example west african countries you will see that the sardine that before were consumed directly by the population and it's very healthy and it's a population that needs uh, animal protein fish protein especially sardines are now turned into fish meal that are used in east asia and northern europe to produce fish in aquaculture setting so people think that aquaculture can provide an alternative to fisheries but they are not aware that much of what they think is aquaculture is actually the transformation of fish of a certain type into fish of another type that they that they prefer bigger fish actually uh, sardines are healthier they are tastier that is uh, a subjective judgment but uh, then the fish that people prefer the salmon and uh, salmon become immediately more expensive they can consume they are consumed only in wealthier country and so wealthier countries are developing all kind of schemes to develop the aquaculture but that will require because they they talk about when they talk about aquaculture they talk about uh, carnivorous fish fish that needs other fish to eat and this aquaculture requires food and uh, feeds and these are, are fish that are uh, imported from elsewhere and increasingly the fish that are imported from elsewhere are literally taken out of the mouth of people mm-hmm. and and i was really astonished and alarmed to read in in your book vanishing fish that now a quarter of the world's fish catch actually goes into making animal feed for these aquaculture yep. industries yeah it is and and the and the fish that is ground up is actually exactly good fish in north america in canada as well most people are are not really aware that small fish are not only edible but tasty and and good for you and and then people like them but in europe people are used to anchovies and 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 sardine and herring and so on this is a special dish that people like in the low income countries also small fish are very much liked uh and yet increasingly instead of being used for human consumption small fish are used for animal feed and fed to groupers and especially uh bass and so and especially salmon and then they become too expensive for anybody but people in uh, high income countries and so you have aggregate figures of production you have aquaculture production and it's viewed as being on top of fish production but actually you catch one or the other or you have one or the other you cannot have both because one is needed to produce the other What you just described about how all too often environmental impacts are also human rights impacts is a theme that really permeates all your work. 
the light you've shown on the impacts on developing countries is something that had been missing from the science around this and is one of the ways your work has been so paradigm shifting. And as part of this, you've really tackled problems entrenched throughout the so-called hard sciences and denormalized systems and and methods that have dominated the field for decades and, and led to continued inequalities. For example, you have called out the biological sciences for failing to incorporate data from the social sciences like anthropology and historical data. And this really means that it ignores the experiences of of small-scale fisheries and local and indigenous knowledge. What are the problems associated with ignoring these other areas of knowledge, and what have you done to integrate them into your work? Well, first, the reason why they are being ignored is that um, in many countries, especially developing countries, the people in in urban areas... uh, that manage fisheries or that are in fisheries department, they have studied, they often have studied abroad in foreign countries. They come back with visions of industry, of development, of advanced technology and so on, and completely ignored what is happening in their country in the rural areas. And in fact, they're not prepared to deal with this. So these countries report Uh, very frequently, only the catch that is made by industrial fishing. They care only about what is made by by, uh, what is caught by tuna boats and and, uh, uh, enterprise that uh, will farm, for example, groupers that go go for exports. And there are many countries that report the catch to FAO, to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome. That's the only body that gathers catches from all over the world, they report only commodities that are exported as relevant to the economy of their countries. And yet the food security of their countries is provided by actually catches that they don't know about, catches that are made by small-scale fishers, um, either uh, small-scale fishers that are artisanal, that means they sell their catch, but they sell it locally, or by subsistence fishers, fishers that fish directly for their own consumption or for bartering. These fisheries are very often run by women, run and practiced by women. And that means they are completely out of of the mindset that fishery statistics and fishery statisticians consider. And uh, we have assessed what is being caught in the world by subsistence fisheries by women. First of all, we have used food consumption estimate by the World Health Organization. You have, for many countries that have it established that the population eats perhaps, say, 20 kilograms of fish per year per person, and yet they don't import fish. That means it must have been caught locally. So this analysis by the World Health Organization has helped us frame the, the, the problem. And then when it comes to analysis of of where this, how this fishing is organized, we have found a lot in, in gender studies, women looking at other women activities and uh, that include fishing or anthropological studies. An anthropologist will be in a village several years and, and looking at what people do. And these studies are not in, also in the mainstream of fisheries, but we have used them to complement the official statistics because the official statistics mainly are 
looking at fish that can are commodities that can can be sold, especially it, it can be sold uh, for foreign exchange in can ex exported. And I have to mention the reason why this is so, because low income developing countries usually don't have efficient tax system, and they don't tax people. Uh, and the government depends on its ability to on, it, on its control of natural resources. So they sell mining licenses, they sell uh, access to fishing grounds, they sell essentially everything that is not nailed to the ground because they they don't have a tax base. And that basically that is also the reason why this the governments are don't do what, what is good for the country because they don't depend on the citizen for maintaining the government. And so you can have absurd situation, such as, for example, the government of Senegal, which is a country that really needs the fish that is caught by uh, its hundred thousands of fishes, selling access to Chinese vessels that catch things that will be taken out of of the water and brought back to China, even though they cannot afford not to have this fish, but mm -hmm. uh, they they are they feel obliged to do that because you cannot maintain government structure and government activities without selling out the country. It's such a shocking dynamic and shows just how developing nations are often caught between industrial development and the needs of their people, and the really catastrophic situations that can result from that. In addition to shining a light on the inequalities happening today that are all too often forgotten, through your data, you've also worked to redress our short-term memories in terms of environmental history. One of the many incredibly influential contributions you've made throughout your career is the concept of the shifting baseline syndrome that you've coined. And this syndrome really illustrates how vital your work quantifying today's data is and developing these longer term models so that we don't forget 40, 50 years from now what we've had in the past. Can you describe shifting baseline syndrome and how it has impacted fisheries science and policy? So there are various disciplines that have a mechanism for using uh, data collected earlier. For example, astronomy can deal with uh, observation in ancient Chinese text of supernovas, of explosion of suns, really, uh, because uh, they, they have a, a, a physics framework in which this observation can be interpreted. It is also the case for oceanography. Uh, if you have a current and a temperature that is old, you can use it. Now, in fishery science and in biology, in ecology, there was no real framework for using data from the past. Many ecologists and fishery scientists pretended that our discipline is not history-based, is not historical and contingent on previous events, but it's kind of physics that can reproduce uh, anything independent of time. And... Um, I thought about uh, the way that can be best expressed. And I realized that lots of things that have happened in the past, we don't realize them because we use only what happens in our lifetime. 
really as anchor the situation that the world is in or the resource that we study. When we start our, our career, say, it will be at a certain stage and it is vividly in our mind and we know about it and it will change. And that the change that happens in two, three, four decades, we, we can understand it because we can refer it to this first impression that we had when we began our career. But the same thing, what happened in the past to the previous generation of scientists or to our parents and grandparents, doesn't have the same vividness, that doesn't have the same credibility. So basically, our baseline, the point that we use to look, the anchor point that we look to, to measure change, itself shifts from generation to generation. And so, for example, if a, a fish resource goes down, we use the one the, the, as an anchor point at the beginning of our lives, and then we, we notice the change that happened, happened since. But what has happened before to previous generation, we don't really integrate it in our thinking. And this is also not written, if you look at uh, written sources, in the same language, sometimes the different language, in the same fashion that it's written now. And so it's not as credible as it is now. And so we tend to dismiss all the data. And uh, industry capture is uh, also has a result that people are not encouraged to look at how abundant things were before, because then we would we would say, oh, let's reestablish the stocks as to the level that they had before. And and so there is no encouragement. And this little one-page paper that I wrote in '95 actually has, together with other paper that documented very seriously changes that have happened in the past, contributed to the creation of a new scientific discipline called historical marine ecology. And now there are several well-known practitioners, a few are professors in universities now, and they, these people can demonstrate very rigorously that uh, in the past, uh, the abundance of certain animals, turtles or whatever, was so high that we literally cannot imagine it. And the fact that we cannot imagine it prevents us from acting on it. And this uh, new discipline, to the extent that it is now increasingly taken seriously, will help us um, against uh, this, this tendency that we have to deal with losses. And... This is a very dangerous situation because look at even global warming. Mm -hmm. uh, it is happening so fast that young people now, coming online now, are not used to the winters that old folks like me recall. They don't recall uh, snow all over the place. They don't recall cold in the winter uh, because often it's not cold anymore. And if you add two generations and the stories that they will read will not be credible anymore about how things were. And they will not be motivated, really, to make any sacrifice to get back to the past. And so we can have a situation where we have every generation accommodating itself to the change, to a change that overall can be devastating. Right. Let's take an, uh, an example. I don't know if you're going to use it, but imagine 
it will be necessary, for example, in 50 to 100 years, to build ports inside inland because the because of flooding. When these ports are operating, if we have Baratam link, the problem of climate change, do you think people will want to get back to the ports that are then flooded? They will not want to go back. So shifting baseline means that we accommodate ourselves quite quickly to things that are actually not acceptable if we understood the, the amount of change and the, the quality of that change. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, that, that meta critique that you you have of, of science generally and, and its lack of attention to older ways of, of knowing and, and of transmitting knowledge, like oral histories, which you write a little bit about in your book, you know, it, it just really illustrates why we've, we've ended up in the situation that we're in today. Yeah. Your scientific accomplishments in terms of range and impact and creativity and just sheer volume are truly awe-inspiring for anyone. But you faced early in life an extraordinarily hard and unusual childhood that was extremely unjust in many ways and certainly extremely out of the ordinary, to say the least. Will you share a bit about your childhood and how it impacted your worldview and led to you becoming the scientist that you are? I have read about a bit about children that had difficult youth, and it turns out that perhaps most of us will end up badly. But there is a, a small percentage that are resilient, and I have been one of them. Basically, I, I grew up in a family. Uh, well, I was not adopted. I was just, just in there. I was just there. And... Um, they didn't make me feel like I was really a member of the family. I was the only person of color in the whole town. And uh, they they pointed out too much that I was uh, a person of color, that I had be, been given the opportunity to live with them. Otherwise, my mother would have, I would have suffered and stuff. And they didn't treat me well. So as a result, I decided to, to do, uh, as a kid, the, the opposite of what they were. They smoke and drunk. I don't drink and I don't smoke. They were involved in all kind of illegal things. The, they were pretty criminal, most of them. And uh, I don't do this either. And uh, they shun education. Uh, and uh, so I, I went into education and acquired a... Uh, uh, a decent education. So basically, there was a, this was a way to affirm, to assert myself, to, to do the opposite of what this world was leading me to. That is what I think was the point. Like in all good uh, stories, I also had a, a godmother, a fairy godmother, actually. Uh, there was a family that was a regular family, uh, of people who work in the watch industry because that's what was there in the in city where I grew up. I could go one once a month or every three weeks to their place for the weekend. And I, I got scrubbed. <laughs> I remember the scrubbing session. I washed. And uh, then I got, I was fed properly. And I, really, I got a glimpse for 
two, two, three days every month of a normal life. And that was enough to kind of tell me there is another world out there than the chaos and the filth and the, the, more, the, moral, the moral challenges that I was experiencing. And these people, my godmother and her family, really simply by showing that there was something else helped me find myself and gave me the strength to resist. I, I think that's what lots of people don't have, uh, a view of an alternative. And when you have this view, then that's enough to keep you, at least it was enough for me. And I left uh, home, what was my home, at, uh, seven, at 16 or 17. I went to Germany and then I was a volunteer in a church-sponsored um, asylum for developmentally challenged people. And I worked in a hospital and I worked uh, later in a factory while going to night school to finish high school and to get the degree that enabled me to go to university. And so I did all of that in night school while being a, a worker uh, first in a health, in a hospital, and then in a factory, in a chemical product. Basically, the thing is from the, the Swiss family where I grew up, I learned what pathology, <laughs> uh, <laughs> social pathology is, and I didn't want to do that. Basically, that's what it was. So then you chose, after you were in school in Germany and, and, and working your way through in, in these factories and, and other jobs, to purposefully go to these data-deprived nations. Yeah. First, you went to Tanzania yeah, and then that, to Indonesia. That has to do with the, the fact that I, I didn't want to stay in Europe. I was always reminded that I'm a person of color by every encounter. Not It was not violent or even very negative, very repressive. I, I, I didn't, I'm not a victim of racism, but I was aware of it much too much. I was, I was always at the edge of, of being made aware of it. And I, I thought, my gosh, I, if I work in, in the tropics, I will blend in the background better because I'm, the people are brown as well. I had a marvelous advisor, a very powerful uh, scientist in fisheries policy and stuff in Germany. And he arranged for me to get money to do the field work for my master in Ghana. And uh, I uh, was working in Ghana. I quickly learned that I don't blend into the background in Ghana because I'm too light. And I got my first sunburn. I was uh, exposed to the element uh, as as were the Ghanaian, but uh, my skin uh, um, cannot absorb UV light the way theirs could. Anyway, I realized that I was, I was not going to blend in the background, but I, I acquired a taste for working in developing country situation. And so when I had my master, when I, when I had my master, I, I worked for the German bilateral aid organization and I was first going to be sent to Tanzania, so they taught me Swahili, but then I was sent to Indonesia, and I worked two years, and I came back to do a PhD, which I did quite far, but rapidly, two years, and while I was working on that, somebody who was founding a new center that was funded at the time by the Rockefeller Foundation, 
a research center, had heard of my work in, in Indonesia, and he invited me for a consultancy while I was working on my PhD. And I went to the Philippines. I was terrified. He challenged me to write something, a research program, and I did. And it became it became the basis of my work because uh, on that basis he offered me a job as when I had my PhD in 79 and I went to the Philippines where this research center was and 20 years of my career were spent there because this center was supposed to, it was called International Center for Living Aquatic Resource Management. It was supplying the countries of the intertropical belt with advice, with analyses, with work on the resources of these tropical countries, both both in aquaculture and fisheries and fisheries management. And I thrived in this and I taught, I developed lots of techniques, lots of methods, the personal computers, uh, well, first Apple II and other personal computers developed and uh, I developed software for them. This software was uh, like an adaptation of fishery science, but for use in the tropics, in a tropical situation. And, and, and they were widely adopted because I taught courses in Africa, in Latin America, and in Asia, and also in Europe, about how to use this technique and so on. And so I became, well, I guess, well-known, and uh, my career blossomed. And I worked like crazy, and uh, it was a very positive development. Because the center was doing so well, we were invited to become part of a, a group of centers called a consultative group, and a horrible bureaucracy was then imposed on us. And uh, because of that horrible bureaucracy, I decided to leave, and I accepted a job at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia. Uh, in '94, I came, yeah. What was the moment when you were doing your initial field work that you realized that, you know, there wasn't enough data around and that, yeah. you know, the, the, what was there wasn't, yeah. you know, was skewed and, it, and insufficient it, and it, what led to the creation of your software and, and databases? It was actually, I remember precisely when it was, it was in June 75. I, I did my first trip in the Java Sea. The Java Sea at the time where was not exploited, uh, the Java Sea is in Indonesia, between Java and, and Borneo. And it was not exploited by trawlers at the time. There were no trawlers. And I remember the, the first hole, we, this project that I was in was uh, to introduce trawling into Indonesia. Can you imagine such nonsense? Anyway, so we, we dragged a, a net and then uh, lifted it up, and the net is open and on deck. And you have 150 species of fish. We have books to determine what the species are. Uh, that covers over only maybe two-thirds of them. A good part of the species are completely unknown. They are not even described. And they they all similar. They are difficult to, to separate from each other. And none of them contributes a large fraction of the catch. So that... That blew my mind because it meant what I had learned. You study the major species and there is already stuff being done on it. And you analyze what is there. You, you analyze a little bit more on that species 
and and you use what is previously known. But that was not possible because these species were not showing up in the literature. Nobody had worked on them. And again, many of them were not even known to new to science. So it was clear that the approach that we had been taught in a university in Germany wouldn't work in a tropical situation like like in Indonesia. In Ghana, it was different. Uh, I was working on a lagoon, and 95% of the fish caught was one species that could tolerate the high fluctuation of salinity and so on of that lagoon. But in, in the Java Sea, it was different. Hundreds of species. So what do you do? And I realized that it would be necessary to gather the scattered information that you have that was available on this fish, to gather that and to infer from that some generality that can be used to manage the fish. And so when I returned one and a half year later to do my PhD, that's what I did. For example, I collected all the available result data on um, on so-called natural mortality of fish. And I tried to predict this estimate of natural mortality from something else, from something that was easier to estimate, which is uh, the growth parameters. If you know how they grow, you also know how they die, because the growth compensates for what they die. And this was the first very successful paper I wrote. And it's now a citation classic with 3,000 citations or something. And I also realized that it would be necessary to understand how they grow. And uh, so this was I had two aspects. One is using this computer method to infer growth from the size distribution of uh, that they have. And uh, that was very successful. I developed a software called Elephant that is used still like crazy by everybody. And another aspect of it was finding a theory that explains why they grow like they do. I was also successful with this, and I developed a theory uh, that is now called Gill Oxygen Limitation Theory, which I still work on nowadays. I, I And people are beginning to take it seriously, especially in connection with global warming because mm-hmm. the theory connects uh, the growth of fish with the oxygen requirement. Basically, the fish have gills that allows a limited amount of oxygen to be incorporated. And this oxygen, when it's hot, is used up real fast. And so they have problem really breathing. This theory was very satisfying. It was, I got a PhD out of it and lots of papers, but Lots of people couldn't deal with it until recently. And only recently has, has it become more, I would say, popular. But it, people are beginning to take it seriously because global warming makes it clear. Global warming affects the fish in a manner that is predicted by their theory. And so people are beginning to take it seriously. Anyway, so in June 75, I experienced an epiphany when this trawl net was open and you have a wriggling mass of of fish on deck that you don't know anything about. Wow. 
Yeah, it seems like initial skepticism of, of the work that you're doing and that eventual realization, you know, decades later of just the magnitude of what you've accomplished is kind of a running theme in, in the work that you've done. Yeah, it seems so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to um, Fishbase, which is an amazing online uh, encyclopedia that you later built and Sea Life Base, which is based on it, which is doing the same for other types of animals in the ocean and various ecological modeling software and this whole slew of tools and methods that you developed have completely transformed the portrait of what we know about the state of the world's fisheries and how it's changing. Given that all of that information that you've learned and, and helped bring to light, what do you think needs to be done to try to reverse the, the decline yeah. towards marine dystopia? Basically, you, you can take COVID as a good example. You can either follow the, the guidelines that the consensus of epidemiologists and other medical people, and you will have a decline in infection, a decline in death. That is happening throughout the world, in Europe, in Asia, and stuff. Or you can pretend it's not the case, and then you get a second and third wave and millions of people sick and and uh, hundred thousands dying. And that is the approach of denying the science. It's very similar in fisheries. You can either get rid of subsidies that everybody agrees are bad for you. You can get rid of subsidies, can manage fisheries, rebuild fisheries, and the U.S., uh, shows that it can be done, and other countries that have tried find that it can be done, or you can not do it. And if you don't do it, you will have the mess. Again, COVID is a, is a case in point. If you can do it right, we know how to do it, or you can refuse to do it right, and then you get the consequences. And the science is very clear about fisheries. You have to get rid of subsidies. You have to manage them. You have to prevent the fisheries essentially from committing suicide. Uh, a fishery left on its own will build capacity, will build bigger engine on bigger boats, more people will get in, and it will destroy the resource. That's what it does if there is no management. It's like your kids. Uh, if you give them, if you leave them alone with a pile of chocolate, they will eat until they get sick. <laughs> you have to tell them don't eat the chocolate or, or give them one chocolate at a time, uh, one per day or something. And this is a paradox that the NGO community is seen as by the fishing industry and the fishers communities as the enemy. We are the people who prevent them from committing suicide all the time. In addition to calling for a ban on high seas fishing and dramatically expanding marine protected areas and other desperately needed policy changes, you've called for a future that supports vibrant artisanal fisheries, where people fish more but catch less, are paid and are treated decently, and produce high quality fish as luxury products for people to eat on special occasions. This would allow fish stocks to rebuild, but as you point out, it would also be much more equitable to developing nations and coastal nations who are being disproportionately hurt by the overfishing fleets that are primarily owned by developed nations. What would fisheries in this future look like? But essentially, throughout the world, artisanal vessel uh, fishing the first, the coastal areas uh, down to 50 kilometers off the shore 
can catch most of what is available from the sea. Essentially, as soon as you're talking about going far offshore, you are talking about exploiting stuff that A, you could catch inshore because they migrate inshore, and B, catching things that are long-lived, very long-lived. So, for example, catching fish at one and a half, two kilometers is something that you can do for five years, and then the stocks are not available anymore. You, it's like logging old-growth forest. And so sustainable fisheries are essentially fisheries that are coastal. Uh, they don't use lots of energy to go back and forth to the fishing ground. They don't use lots of energy to drag a net two kilometers down in the sea uh, against uh, piles of water, as uh, trawlers do. And they are performed by vessel and crews who cannot go very far. So it means that they depend on the stocks that they have there. And so they are amenable. I'm not saying they, they, that's what they do spontaneously, but they will be amenable to managing the resource that they can exploit because they cannot go far offshore. They cannot go elsewhere. And I, I think that the fisheries of the future, that's what they will be. If we have fisheries in a, way in the future, that's what we're going to have. The big monster boats that are going offshore, exploiting resources that are equivalent to logging uh, old growth forest will be gone because the old growth forest also will be gone. And um, if you need example of that is the orange ruffy. It's a fish that can go to more than 100 years, even though it's about as long as two hands, a, a foot at most, even smaller. But uh, they reach more than 100 years. So you're eating, when you're eating orange roughy, you're eating a fish that is older than, than your grandmother. And that doesn't make sense. And these fisheries really are fisheries for subsidies. They cannot earn their own money. They work economically only because they have all kinds of advantages, ranging from tax breaks on building the boat, running the boat. They have a pass on using uh, sailors that are not paid properly. And the problem of slavery in fishing is also a real problem of industrial fisheries. And so the, the problem, this, the problem industrial fisheries are immense. They, it never stops. And you could really replace most of what they do by well-run inshore artisanal fisheries. And we would not have this huge problem with illegal fishing, with uh, foreign access, with slavery on ships and so on, and smuggling, and all of this problem would disappear. You've said before that, like many scientists and people who are interviewed, you're often asked if you're an optimist or a pessimist, but that really that's not the issue at hand. What matters is getting an accurate diagnosis of the problem yeah, exactly. and, and acting yeah. on it. And um, I loved this interview where you quote Churchill as you said, yeah. you know, Churchill never was or wasn't optimistic in fighting the Nazis. The point is that he fought them. Um, yes. I loved that quote. 
what advice would you give to young people who admire your work and who are at the beginning of their careers and similarly to you are entering their various fields of whether it be fishery science or something else with the desire to help people? I would I recommend to them that they connect their work with the work of an NGO, an environmental NGO. I couldn't do it at the time because uh, because there were no environmental NGO that I could work with. But nowadays, it is the only thing that you can use to properly contextualize what you do. And also, I would advise not to get to into black hole of over-specialization, but to have a generous, broad view of things. But the technical skills that are acquired, they must be combined with societal involvement. I think that we must now more and more have the scientists speaking up because if they don't, they leave the field to the politician and to the pundits and to people who don't know and uh, who make an agenda that is science-free. And science is actually not only what you can do, but it's also what you cannot do. And it is okay to know what kind of things you shouldn't do, you shouldn't be doing. And, and we see that in COVID. If people listen to what scientists, uh, epidemiologists tell them, then they would not do certain things. And we would get rid of that monstrosity faster. But it takes a long time to kind of know, find out all these things. And it helps if you are a young person, if you work in with, with an NGO, because that NGO, confronted with the reality of effectuating change, will provide access to the, that wisdom faster. So yes, the, the summary of all of this is join an NGO, an amount <laughs> NGO. <laughs> Yes, that's definitely advice that I, I personally um, appreciate. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like this kind of fear of, of losing your perceived objectivity and, and actually ah. getting involved in prescriptive behaviors is, is in many ways limiting scientists yeah. and uh, their impact. If you work for an NGO, it will not affect really the way your science is done, the rigor of the science, because the review system, the peer review system, will prevent you from pontificating and, and, and trying to to escape the, the rigor, the need to be rigorous in your science, uh, you will not be able to get away with it anyway. So you can very well be in favor of a certain solution, but the science paper you write, they still have to be scientific. They still have to have the rigor. So I continue publishing in peer-reviewed journals, and I have opinions, I cannot publish on the base of this opinion. I have to mm -hmm. present evidence, and that, that is the evidence that is in the papers mm -hmm. uh, rather than opinion. So you, you can actually reconcile very well involvement in a social cause, in a societal cause, and at the same time being a good scientist. You've obviously had uh, an incredibly long, impactful, and in, in many ways, paradigm-shifting career. What's next for you? Uh, <laughs> death. <laughs> 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 I, 
I hope not. For a while, at least. Okay, okay let, let, let. <laughs> Basically, I, I, I'm thinking of wrapping up a, a few things conceptually. For example, I am trying to write a few papers, more papers on this uh, uh, gill oxygen theory because it's not over the hump. It's not like shifting baseline or or my other papers. It's it's not over the hump. It's not widely accepted. So I'm writing mainly on that uh, scientifically, and uh, I will probably write one or two books more, probably about about that uh, to wrap up this yeah, this story. But uh, I'm, I'm 74 and I have not retired, even though there are people in my institute who would like me to retire, mainly because they would like to hire some younger people. But I don't retire and I won't retire as long as uh, I can drag myself to the office, which I don't need to do now because of COVID, <laughs> because uh, my productivity is actually quite high still. And I will monitor my productivity, and when it gets down to the average level, then I will um, retire. Well, we and I know the world is grateful for your continued work on this and the fact that you are continuing to work hard and, and put out books and, and articles and not uh, getting the rest that, that others might want at this stage. To close, um, we ask each guest to recommend books, articles, films, or, or other works that have had a significant impact on how you understand and approach your work. Would you share a few with those of those with us? You said the Martian, right? I, I like I yes. like the Martian. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a film that was made about our work. It's called An Ocean Mystery: The Missing Fish. Uh, it described how we got an idea of the real catch of the world. The filmmaker, uh, she managed to make out of something that sounds dreary and boring, almost like a, an interesting thing. I would recommend that film. In terms of books, I don't know. I, I read about a book a week, and uh, I alternate between fiction and nonfiction, and I read lots of science books, but it is a blur. <laughs> <laughs> I just read a book called Alien Ocean, the last science book I read last week. It is a, somebody who works for NASA, I think, making a pitch for Enceladus and Europa and Titan, satellites of Jupiter and Saturn, having oceans which yeah. would contain life. That was very interesting, yeah. except that uh, I won't see it because I'm too old. I won't see that life. It did not annoy me. No, I, I cannot recommend a book, a single book, because they lack a blur. I, I have too many in my head at, at the same time. Yeah. Well, Jen and I will go ahead and recommend, having spent quite a while reading interviews and, and papers and so forth by you, recommend those to everyone listening, because um, you, you have a, a wonderful way of combining tremendous style and, and insights from all sorts of places. We can tell that you're reading that often in the references and from novels to, to film and beyond that are included in your work and that really enrich it immensely and, and make it so it can be translated in yeah. such a powerful way to people who aren't experts in the field like us. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Polly, and for all your work. My pleasure. 
Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more about Dr. Pauly and his work. Thanks for listening.